beautiful. You are listening to episode 58 of the Africana Woman podcast. Chulu is my name. I am a writer, self-branding coach, entrepreneur, and mentor. This show is the home of African women's stories. We share ideas, triumphs, challenges, and lessons from our perspective as women. Our library is a step to cementing our place in history. Her story, your story, is powerful. Thank you so much for tuning in. Welcome to all the new listeners. Welcome back to our OG Africana Woman family. Please hit the subscribe button or visit AfricanaWoman.com to become an official Africana Woman visionary. Last week, we talked about those in society that are experiencing extreme poverty. Therefore, today, I thought it was prudent to shine some light on the African women who are out of sight, therefore forgotten by many. These are women who have been incarcerated. Did you know that there are colonial laws that are still in effect right now in 2022? that essentially have been weaponized against our own people. Have you ever thought about how lack of education, as basic as not being able to read, disadvantages those who have a run-in with the law? You will hear Lydia Kembabazi, a Ugandan lawyer, give an excellent breakdown of the dynamics of advocacy for incarcerated women, children, and refugees, and She also talks about police policy reform. Here is our conversation. Lydia Winnie Kembabazi is a Ugandan lawyer who has had the privilege to serve in different capacities, managing legal programs across the African continent, and is now an advocacy officer at IHRDA in the Gambia, leading legal reform advocacy projects across Africa. Her pan-African human rights work experience is cross-cutting, including legal and policy reform advocacy, but she is particularly passionate about criminal justice reform, refugee and asylum seeker protection, women and children's rights, especially for those in detention. I am very, very excited to welcome Lydia to the Africana Woman podcast. We've had a few false starts, but we're here finally. So this is so exciting. Welcome to Africana Woman. Thank you so much, Chilu. I'm very honored to be part of the Africana Woman podcast. So I always like to start with this question, which is what is your favorite childhood memory? Okay. Uh, My favorite childhood memory, there are so many. There are absolutely many. I grew up in a very... um, small my mining town like emini dollar uh, and uh, my favorite childhood memory always was when mom took us to a lady she was a tailor to make us outfits it was always great always great to, to be able to wait we wouldn't wait as kids of course to know that you know after some time we're having mattresses it was always exciting and at times it would be a surprise she would not tell us exactly what she's making what material she found but she'll take it to the tailor for measurements and she was the only tailor in the small town okay not in the small town but in the area we live in so we used to go around her house and pick the fabric and you're like is it this one is it this one 
that has always been the most amazing memory that I had. But there were so many memories I had. So did you grow up in Uganda? Yes, I was born and bred. I grew up in Uganda. I was born in a small town called Kilembe. It was a small copper mining town then. And uh, now it's defunct, really. And my mom used to work at the hospital, Kilembe Mines Hospital, until she retired. So I was born and bred in Uganda. I studied in Uganda for all my education until my master's. So, yes, I lived absolutely for a very long time and part of my adulthood in Uganda. So you have traveled and worked in so many different countries and i always find people that you know relocate to be so brave and i'm actually very excited because you've also been to zambia <laughs> where were you when you came to zambia um i was living in lusaka chadi to be specific Yes, I was working at Legal Resources Foundation. Um, I think that was Woodgate House, Cairo Road. Mm-hmm. I don't remember the floor, but that was the place. Uh, I had uh, competed in a French concept um, exchange program for human rights activists, and uh, I was in an exchange program for the whole of 2009. So I was in Zambia for that time, and I absolutely liked it. I think um, the issue of moving and being brave, uh, I, 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 I can agree with that because I, I will not deny that I do not terribly miss family, friends, some occasions that have happened and functioned. But at the end of the day, I think um, the African values that we have, of Ubuntu, you know, I am because we are, you always have to sometimes get comfortable. People almost are the same. It might just be just the languages, the challenges are the same. And when it comes, of course, to work, I always think that, you know, we can always encourage each other to replicate what practices have been done best in another country that can be done in a different country. How do we coordinate our efforts? How do we uh, support collaboration across the continent for collective advocacy? So, yeah, it is, it, it is worth to move, but then it is not as daunting as, as, as you may think it might be. So it is it's actually interesting and challenging too at the same time. The countries that you've been to have, like that I just mentioned, which I know of, like Uganda, Zambia, Austria, South Korea, Nigeria, Sierra Leone, and now you're in the Gambia. They're absolutely stunning countries with so much depth in their cultures that I think, for me, it's the, I think what draws me to different countries is just exploring that new culture and getting to experience it. And yeah, I think it's really cool. So tell us a little bit about the work that you do. You are currently in the Gambia be right mm-hmm. yes yes um so currently in the gambia i am an advocacy officer working on um, supporting um, strategy advocacy efforts across um, the different parts of africa specifically on using our protection mechanisms um the african courts african commission the african court of justice and the African Committee of Experts on Rights and Welfare Children, um, ECOWAS Court, to mention but a few, uh, all of them tend to give recommendations, decisions, and orders for countries 
um, to align the human rights protection mechanisms and systems. So I follow up on what exactly they have done in regarding implementation of the same. So if there are policies and laws that have been ordered or recommended to be enacted or revised or repealed, what's the, what steps have been taken? Uh, but of course, that always is taken into the social, cultural, political context. Uh, you know, you, you work with people in those countries, um, the appointed authorities to manage and uh, follow up on those decisions. I was in Mali uh, in respect of uh, the same regarding uh, particular issues that they did with their persons and family court, you know, where women could not inherit land and wife inheritance issues. So you, you look at how do you put into a policy that might work in respect of the cultural context. And of course, it's, it's, it's not something that happens in a day. It's not something that will happen in a year. But you take the steps to ensure that if at least there's a law in the beginning, then you can hold people accountable to that. And so we go through systems, how do we pass laws, do we do a private member's bill, or do we just, you know, um, amend an existing law, and all that. Or if there are actually good policies already happening, yeah, there's a very good example of Niger. It's been very good in complying with some of these um, orders and recommendations. Like how can we just replicate their work that they're doing? In the rest of the countries and you know highlight the impact of the work that they are doing so it's not just only that but also to see how we can duplicate very good uh, practices that have been happening that we can then introduce in all these areas of our work i hope um, that has been a bit clear yeah so you know that's very interesting when you talk about um you know being respectful of uh you know, the different contexts and in the different countries. So how do you handle, for example, when you gave the example of, um, I think it was Mali, you know, where women are not able to inherit land. Um, but, you know, if that's something that they believe in, what are the, how do you step in and, um, I guess, advise? Yeah. Of course, um, I can say that, Almost everybody um, has had a child who is a girl child who has had a mother. At least everyone is born. <laughs> so you might not have a girl child, but you have a mother. So the context is always how do you approach people who have influence in community, especially in such areas where culture and religion are a little bit intertwined um, in the Islam, the Islam culture, the Islam religion and the just the culture of the people. Who do you talk to? So you, you, you have to use um, people of influence in the religious sector, in the cultural concept, in the cultural context to explain and create awareness. So it's, it's a strategy that you have to create and ensure that it's not someone who um, will just be seen. And in this case, someone who just, you know, for like me, for example, talking to them would, you know, doesn't make sense. But if it is one of their own who's saying, you know, imagine if my mom was denied blood, if this happened, so this person already doesn't have a husband, husband has died, 
I mean, she already cannot go back to her ancestral home. So denying her her property um, is, is inhuman in our cultural context because culturally we protect our women in society, we protect our children. So you don't approach it from, you know, this is what maybe, I know, understand that this is what the UN and the international treaties say, but how do you approach it in a way that actually will work? Because in practice, you might have your loan, you might have everything, but in practice it might not work. If the people who matter to them are not saying the same, they're not saying the same thing that you are trying to say. So you are um, particularly interested, um, and I'll just pick on like women and children's rights. Um, and I, I think you've also done work and advocacy around um, women that are incarcerated, right? Um, could you tell us a little bit around what are the, the problems um, that are prevailing in such situations? Um, I can say that, of course, women and children naturally have that interdependent and intertwined um, relationship. And um, even if they all represent a minority of like the global prison population, their imprisonments have been going rapidly. And of course, we realize what research and um, policy around that is often you know, gender blind, if I may say. And uh, much as men also, of course, get into um, contact with the law and get incarcerated, the experiences and unique challenges that women and children face are very specific. So you find that um, we have culturally, socially, historically been um, disproportionately affected because, you know, we, some people didn't go to school as much because you're a girl, you know, you won't go to school, you don't have access to education. So if you are incarcerated or you are arrested at that point, someone might tell you, oh, you know what, um, sign this statement and you'll go home. But then you, you have not even read that statement. You don't even know what it means because already you are at a disadvantage, you didn't go to school, then you sign a statement and... Um, you will then uh, incriminate yourself. Then, of course, there are some problems that come in in situations where um, women, we've had these very disproportionate and very vague laws that were previously colonial and were intended to keep uh, the colonized in one place to avoid any form of like riots and opposition. I don't want disorderly, I don't know, is it loitering? And they are still persistent in our systems. So when you find such situations, a woman is arrested and um, because she's trying to sell bread maybe at night, outside maybe a bar selling granites and cigarettes and things like that. And this, our, our economic situation as women and most of us as breadwinners really affects us and in turn. So when such a person is affected, the economic impact on her family because she's a breadwinner, on the social impact of children who will not have um, a mother to look after them. But then also in time, when she goes in, in, in detention and has the opportunity to get out, the stigma, the, the, the loss of income anymore because you know, the police will confiscate some of their goods. And so once they get out, then they don't have any form of sustainability 
economically anyways, but also goes back to, you know, the effects in their mental health, you know, and some of them culturally have had some who, if you get into prison, it's like a curse or things like that. And then you have to do some rituals, maybe to cleanse yourself and things like that. And then a woman does not even have money to afford, maybe, you know, they are telling you bring a white coat, a coat, or things like that. You're already just from detention. So your family will disown you because you need to have some cultural rights performed before you are welcome back into the system. So for me, I'm just passionate about that. that if a woman doesn't get into that cycle of um, detention, then it is so much that has been prevented. And then, of course, the issue of domestic abuse and violence, which has never been taken into consideration when a woman, for example, I would say out of uh, you know, diminished responsibility, how we call it, you know, she just maybe uh, stabs her husband who dies or any partner. And then throughout the time she would be reporting to police that this person is abusing her, tell you, go back home, so Don't, you know, this is a family issue and all that. And then when she gets into court, everyone is looking at the murderer and no history of abuse is taken into consideration. So um, I think that's what uh, I think uh, makes me want to be passionate about open reform. If there can be a way we can have very good uh, reforms in our penal laws, which have, of course, been very um, gender blind and don't put into consideration such issues. If we can have gender responsive systems, not only justice systems, but so many systems take into consideration the unique challenges and specific issues that women are faced with when they are considering any issues to do with penal reform or any form of reforms for that matter. Lots of things are like popping up in my mind. But you know, I think especially like when you're talking about stigma, I think that one um, stood out for me a lot because, you know, I think a lot of times when we know that somebody has been incarcerated, um, whether it be a short or for a longer period, you know, um, that out of sight, out of mind it's like most people just don't even think about what is that person actually going through? You know, what standards are they living in? And, you know, you're not even thinking, you're thinking, well, they've gone to prison, but then what are the actual standards and, you know, how are they actually being treated in that space? You know, but, and it's, and even when I think when somebody comes out, like you said, like, um, I say they've served their time or whatever and they come out and people have that and I mean I've done it myself where you know you're thinking I don't know it's like the guiltiness doesn't stop <laughs> you know what I mean <laughs> it's like um, they've served their time yes but in in your mind as an individual you're still thinking well that person they did this they could never I don't know. There's no grace for um, the reform, grace for um, forgiving or moving past what um, whatever they experienced, whatever um, they went to, they were incarcerated for. You know, and I, I think I found myself being more um, more conscious of it as well, like thinking more uh, about. Um, just thinking about, you know, 
at some point you cannot just always be holding somebody to what they did in their past because it, you wouldn't want to have that on you. Like we're kids, you know, when you're kids, you make bad mistakes. Now imagine if somebody is still holding those bad mistakes that you made um, to you right now, like you're a different person, you've changed, you know? And yeah, I think those are some of the things that I've been thinking about, especially when it comes to, um, yeah, people who have been through um, the system, you know? Because, I mean, let's just even take it basic. Like, if you met a guy <laughs> who had been to prison, right? He served his time, you'd be like, mm-hmm. and, you know, it's like dating, you'd be like, mm-hmm. no. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's, there's so much um, hesitation and, um, like you said, stigma, you know? Now, do you... The work that you are doing, are you focusing mostly on um, that initial stage when they've just um, been, let's say, picked up by the police? Or are you also looking at what's happening to them, for example, when they're in the prisons and, you know, the state of their imprisonment or even just, I guess, the um, how they found themselves in that in that situation and, you know, they're in prison. So let's say if it was like a wrongful or maybe it was the 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 judgment was too harsh, you know. Um, currently not. Uh, I'm more into like the police reform and focusing, which of course still goes around the same issue. What laws do we have that are disproportionately affecting different people? It may not just be the women, but how are how are laws affecting people and how can we have reforms around the same? In Sierra Leone, though, that was like the key thing. Um, at Advocate, we specifically were very proactive in having paralegals go to police stations. We did not wait for the women to come to us. Specifically, go to police stations, identify the women who are there, who are coming to contact with the law, what issues that they have. If we can have it resolved at the police station, which was always my preferred position, number one, let it stop here. If it, it is not, then um, if they end up being um, charged to court, how we had duty councils who would represent them. And even at the time when they were sentenced to, you know, a, maybe death or a, another harsh uh, penalty, it was always good appeal, and I think Advocate has had um, a, a very good reputation for having saved people from death row or appealing death penalties, and having actually worked very, very hard to ensure that the death penalty was abolished in Syria, which it did in um, July this year. So I, the full Advocate it was all round. It was a whole cycle from the point of police to the point um, of appealing. Um, a decision that was made against a woman, depending on the circumstances of the case. So, I, I guess in proportion to how many women are incarcerated in a year, um, how many women were you, what percentage of women were you able to help per year, you know? I wouldn't have those statistics um, at hand, but it, it was only for advocate, it was only for women. So, it's 100% women for women and uh, of course uh, with some duty counselors who are also male um, activists um, for women's rights 
it was always a very high um, percentage of people, especially in contact with the law, trying to resolve the matter, the matters that they had. Once they were met at police with uh, our paralegals, and then of course a lot of advocacy with different institutions in the criminal justice system. So it was just not um, only that, but also the advocacy around what we can do for those who are already even in detention, because advocacy was also invited uh, by the Minister of Internal Affairs to be among the organizations that could do like a prison audit. What do you think is good for anyone, not just women, who are in detention? So not only just the physical facilities, but also administrative. It was a huge questionnaire and a way that they allowed us to be on the table to come and have these discussions with them. Shows the great work and uh, the reputation that Active Aid has in Sierra Leone, but also to show that the impact that we have had I um, may not have the percentage of my hands, but the impact that advocate has had in Sierra Leone is really actually very great in um, ensuring that women and children have a great access to justice. So what advice would you have for people listening that would want to support um, the work that, you know, you're doing, what can people do to um, extend their, you know, their hands and, and help in a way? Mm, I think um, minus, of course, uh, supporting with finances, which of course both are key for anything really. If I need to speak to you, I need internet and internet is paid for. If I need paralegal, um, I need to support them to give them you know, an allowance for transport and all that. Minus the fact that you know there is a way you can financially give and advocate of course has a lot of um, um, opportunities for anybody to give. HRDAY, I'm currently opportunity to give. You can always donate to this um, causes that people have. Um, I think even if you don't, in a small way, your impact can come in in supporting initiatives that you might have. Um, you can always share these on your different social media um, uh, pages, websites, but also you know, if there's any way that people can volunteer their time, people can volunteer time, people can volunteer um, uh, expertise, if it's to draft a law, if it is to give some time to um, teach people on how to better handle maybe people with mental health issues or to cancel people in detention. There's every different way that people can be able to support and uh, or, or ultimately in any way, in whatever way, the small, smallest impact can go a great way to change a woman or a child's life. So anywhere that anybody can support is always welcome. Great. So, Lydia, could you tell us how do people get in touch with you? Where do they go to find out more about the work that you are doing? And, you know, if they want to support, like, where, how do people get in touch with you? All right. Um, people can get in touch with me. They can look up. Um, for personal reasons, I'm not on uh, social media, Twitter and Facebook. But you can find me on, uh, on LinkedIn, LinkedIn profile. 
You can support um, IHRBA by visiting their website. Um, then you can get so much information on how to contact them. You can contact AdvocAid. There's so much information on how to contact them. Uh, I think and if you'd like to send an email or you'd like to uh, get in touch with me, uh, I can always give my email. And uh, it's simple. It's grateful. Kemba grateful. The word and then K-E-M-B-A at gmail.com. Oh, thank you so, so much for this conversation. It has been very insightful and I feel that the work that you're doing is very important. Um, often forgotten um, because, you know, uh, a lot of times we want to ignore certain aspects of our um, society and culture, but that you bring it to light and you bring... Um, justice for everybody you know the forgotten whether it's the women the children refugees um and any other people i think is such important work so i thank you and i honor the work that you do um so yes thank you so much for being on the podcast thank you so much i'm very honored to have been part of the Every time I hear this conversation, I think out of sight, out of mind. And in addition, how easy it is for us to take education for granted when we have always had access to it. However, there are those in our society who are blocked from gaining knowledge, even as basic as the ability to read. You know, when I started the Africana Woman podcast, I felt that this could be a vehicle that drives a culture shift. Which is not to say that I am all-knowing and I know what is wrong or right in our culture or what should stay in our culture or should be kicked out. No, that's not what I'm saying. You must understand that culture is often a subconscious and unspoken contract that we operate by. Therefore, if you are not willing to name a thing, call a spade a spade and engage in dialogue, the toxicity in our culture will continue to run rampant. It blows my mind that in 2022, police have the remit to enforce colonial laws on our streets today. Or how some societies barricade women from making any sort of living, but at the same time ostracize her for circumstances beyond her control, such as being widowed. Could we just think through some of the judgments and actions that we inflict on women? She could be a widow, divorced, childless, or formerly incarcerated, whatever it is. Are your prejudices justified? Or will you help her to rise up? Mwaposuka. There's no homework today. <laughs> the only thing that I ask is that we continue the conversation. You can go to AfricanaWoman.com or find us on Facebook or LinkedIn at Africana Woman Visionaries. Stop operating in autopilot. We can shift culture by speaking up. So in this community, guys, you know how we do. We give people their roses right now, <laughs> which means go find Lydia Kembabazi on LinkedIn. Tell her you heard her on the Africana Woman podcast and mention what you learned from this episode. 
You can catch me during the week on Instagram at Chulu by Design. Tell your friends about the Africana Woman podcast by posting about it on your stories. And don't forget to tag me. I love your feedback. Now, let's keep the conversation going. This has been a production of Africana Woman Media. Africana Woman Media.